Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science research methods in practice. In this episode, we talk with Diva Pager, professor of sociology at Harvard University and professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Dr. Pager studies institutions affecting racial stratification, including education, labor markets, and the criminal justice system. Today, we talk about her research that involves a series of field experiments studying discrimination against minorities and ex-offenders in the low-wage labor market. Welcome to the podcast. We're here today to talk about experimental field audits. So if you're going to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you describe it? Okay, so I used a method called, it's a type of field experiment called an audit study. And this is a method that's used to examine discrimination, particularly in labor markets, though this method has also been used in housing and in consumer markets. The kinds of audit studies that I've conducted have involved hiring groups of young men to pose as job applicants, and I assign these young men fictitious resumes that reflect identical levels of education and work experience, and then send them all over the city applying for real entry-level jobs uh, in order to see how employers respond to otherwise identically qualified applicants who differ only on the basis of race, ethnicity, or criminal background. So we're going to use that research on criminal records um, as a proxy, as a way to understand how this method works. So in your studies, you know, what were your central research questions, and then how did you design your study around those questions? Okay, sure. So two main questions. One was, how much does a criminal record, how much does a criminal record matter in hiring decisions for low-wage jobs? And does that effect differ depending on the race of the applicant? And so in order to go about studying this question, we wanted to control for all of the kinds of things that might be correlated both with having a criminal record and with having difficulty finding work. So you might imagine that the kinds of people that wind up in prison are also people that have unstable work histories or substance abuse problems or other difficulties that might make their employment outcomes challenging. So when we look at observational data um, or data from surveys and see a correlation between having spent time in prison and uh, having trouble uh, finding employment, it's difficult to know exactly what's causing that trouble. Um, And so the appeal of an experiment is that you can control for all of those confounding characteristics. So by constructing identically qualified applicants and randomly assigning one member of a pair a fictitious criminal record, we're able to cleanly isolate the effect of a criminal record net of those other characteristics. Right. And so you actually go out and you find people to have these resumes, right? And then you assign them to jobs to in the real world. So this is what makes it kind of a unique design. Right. So as an experimental methodology, it's a nice blend between Um, experimental methods that are heavily controlled and that um, helpfully isolate a causal mechanism, but it's an experiment that's taking place in real-world settings, and so in that sense it has a little bit more generalizability than typical lab experiments do. 
Right. And so after you sent your testers out into the world and they rotated this record, um, what did you learn? What were the core findings? So none of the young men who were posing as job applicants in my study actually had criminal records. So for the purpose of this study, we randomly assigned one member of each pair a criminal record for the first week of employment audits. And so when they went in to apply for jobs, they would check the box that's on most application forms that ask, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And they would check the box to say yes, and they would describe having been convicted of a drug felony and having served 18 months in prison, and they were just released in the past month. Um, we also provided other information on the resume um, in case there was no question on the application form. So we provided information about them having worked in the correctional facility um, and listed their parole officer as a reference. Um, and then for each week of testing, we rotated which member of the tester pair presented evidence of the criminal record. And this way, if there were any individual differences between the young men who were posing as job applicants, we could control that by rotating which which of these individuals was in the role of the ex-offender um, over the course of the study. Great, that's really helpful. Um, so once you once you completed the audit, what did what did you learn, and what were the core findings? Um, so several several core findings. One is that a criminal record had a big impact on hiring opportunities. So people with criminal records were about half as likely to receive a callback as equally qualified applicants with no record. Um, and then beyond that, there were some very striking findings related to race. Um, so the effect of a criminal record was actually larger for uh, black applicants. Um, black applicants with criminal records were about two-thirds less likely to receive a callback compared to a black applicant with no record, um, whereas for whites, the difference was just, it was just half. Um, in addition to that, the main effect of race was really striking. So a black applicant with a clean record fared no better than a white applicant who had just been released from prison. Uh, so essentially, the results suggested that being black in America today was viewed as essentially equivalent to having a felony conviction, at least for employers in these low-wage labor markets. So when you were first thinking about these questions, um, what came first? Was it kind of the topic and asking the questions in the specific way, or was it the idea of using this audit approach? It was absolutely the topic. Um, this idea came to mind when I was um, volunteering in a homeless jobless shelter for young men in Madison, Wisconsin. I'd been really interested in race and inequality. And um, when I would talk to these young men who were coming into the center, you know, for assistance, some of them would talk about the fact that they were struggling to find work because they had a criminal record and employers wouldn't give them a chance. And this was this was like 15 years ago now, and so the issue of like mass incarceration and the effects of criminal records weren't really on the radar screen. I'd never really heard of that as an issue, but listening to these young men talk about it made me wonder like whether this was actually a big problem or whether this was like men finding excuses to justify for themselves why they weren't being successful in the labor market. And right around that time, the Sentencing Project came out with a report about the effects of felony convictions for, for disenfranchisement of African-American men. And that kind of like reinforced for me the fact that, wow, the magnitudes of these effects might be potentially really large. And so I got really excited about, you know, trying to um, put together a dissertation on this issue. And at first, my initial strategy was to use existing data, and I was planning to use the NLSY to look at how spending time in prison might be 
associated with subsequent labor market outcomes and went pretty far down the line of writing up a proposal and getting my committee on board for this project. And when I was pretty well into those analyses, I got the latest issue of AJS. This was, I think, January 1999, and there was an article by Bruce Westard and Catherine Beckett um, that basically did everything that I to do in my dissertation and did it so much better than I've ever done. Um, and I didn't know Bruce Western at the time. I had no idea who he was. He'd been working on unions before this. And so I didn't even know this was a question he was interested in. And it was devastating. You know, it was just like, wow, I'd been completely scooped and there was nothing more for me to do. And I remember that morning going down to see my advisor. And he'd also seen the article in AJS and he looked at me and he was like, yep, I guess you better you have to get a start over. So that was a bummer. That was quite a big setback. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out where to go from there. And I think the process that I went through was kind of listening to the conversation that came after the publication of Bruce's article. And I think people were really excited about the work. But there was always this lingering question of, like, can you really um, make causal attributions about this relationship through observational data? And we know that ex-offenders are such a select group, and we know that they're so different from the general population, and so can we actually make claims that incarceration or criminal records are having these employment effects um, relative to all of the other unobserved characteristics that might be at play? And so I started to think, well, okay, that may be a contribution that I can make. I can, you know, try to isolate that causal effect and that that would be, you know, something that would contribute to that discussion. And so that kind of got me started on the um, experimental route. Right. And, and once you're on, that's a great story, by the way. It's like every graduate student's nightmare. So just to kind of wrap up this set of questions, um, I mean, you've already really kind of foreshadowed this, but is there any other specific ways that this methodological choice really fits in with the more theoretical framing of your questions? How did you connect your method and, and your theoretical approach? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's, I think it really was a, you know, a, a really driven by the methodological questions about, you know, the nature of causal claims in this, in this literature and like, you know, the theoretical literature developing about, um, the legal and social and stigma, the legal and social consequences and stigma associated with having a criminal record or having served time in prison was something that was conceptually appealing but difficult to establish empirically. And so, you know, that's really where the that connection um, that connection was made through this method. Great. So let's talk about how one would actually do this. Um, how did you kind of organize the study, collect and access your data, um, and what was your sampling strategy? The thing about field experiments and audit studies in particular is that they're incredibly conceptually simple. So the basic design is really, really straightforward, right? You just have like two equally qualified people, you send them out to apply for jobs, and then you look at what happens to them. Um, so in that sense, it's a really straightforward approach. But with these kinds of the devil is in the details. And the thing that makes it complicated to implement a study of this kind is just all of the little things that come up or could come up in the course of everyday field work that can compromise the validity of the experimental design. And so it's just a, you know, so I think the, the, the biggest challenge in conducting this research was just like 
um, obsessing over all of the little details like, you know, is the, you know, is the content of each resume like exactly the same? Like what about how the testers are dressing? Um, what's the script that we're using to present information? How might that, you know, what, like, how might that shape or change the employer's response? What happens if, like, the employer is available to talk to one tester but not available to talk to another tester? What happens if, like, a tester gets lost in traffic? Um, there are just, like, lots of things that come up in the course of, like, this everyday field work, and you're trying to control everything so cleanly, um, but you're working in the real world, and so lots of stuff is beyond your control. So that was really the biggest challenge in implementing the study. Probably the other biggest challenge from the perspective of being a graduate student was that it also cost money. So I had to hire young men to pose as job applicants and pay them for their time. So they were, I think, being paid $15 an hour for this work. Um, and so that's not cheap. You know, this was um, about six months of six months of field work that we were um, that where we were collect, connect, conducting the study. Um, and so I had to spend a lot of time, you know, scrambling for grant money and cobbling together funding sources um, for the project, trying to figure out how to hire people and manage people and, um, uh, and then go out and do the study. And then how did you choose the employers that were going to be under study? What was the strategy there? Yeah, so that was a strategy that I, um, you know, adopted from previous uh, field experiments of this kind. So essentially a random sample of job listings in all of the papers in the city at the time, including online listings. And so any any job would qualify for the sample if it required no more than a high school degree and limited work experience. Um, and we also, at the time, excluded any jobs that um, legally prohibited people with criminal records or felony convictions from applying because we felt like there was no point in testing jobs where there was a clear legal um, uh, legal barrier. Uh, so of those available jobs, we took a random sample each week, um, though by the end of the study, we were essentially including a census of jobs because even in large cities, you run out of jobs very quickly if you're only drawing one position from a given employer. Um, so there are large employers that are constantly hiring um, but in our, in, in my case, I was only, uh, auditing a given employer once over the course of the study. And so once they came into the sample, once they were no longer eligible. Um, and so by the end of the study, we were basically taking all available job listings. So once you're in the field, um, there's lots of things that can go wrong in these kind of studies, but, but what were some of the big unexpected challenges that you kind of had to troubleshoot as you were going? Um, okay, I would point to two. One would be um, bureaucratic, and one would be um, uh, logistical, I guess. Um, so the first was that so I hired these young men, and I was really excited about, like, I had grant money, and I found testers that I really wanted to work with, um, and we were, you know, we were um, full steam ahead. But it turns out that, like with many university bureaucracies, it takes a long time to get people into the system and to be able to issue payments. Um, and so I'd hired these young men, and I think it was literally two months after I hired them that I was able to issue the first paycheck. That is a really, really long time for people to go who are working full-time and, you know, depending on payment. I actually ended up 
paying them out of my own pocket. But there was no way for me to like force the university to go faster than it would otherwise. There were all of these bureaucratic channels that they had to go through in order to process the new employee information and issue those payments. So anyway, that was like a really, really big stumbling block. And I felt like I was, you know, at risk of losing these, um, these, uh, these testers that I had worked so hard to carefully recruit and match, um, so that's something, you know, to watch out for when you're dealing with university bureaucracies. And then there were tons of little things that happened during the field work that were, you know, little little tiny fires to put out along the way. Um, I'd say, like, my biggest fear um, was that we would lose testers through the study because um, this was a project that relied on matched pairs. And so the young men were hired not only because they were individually qualified, but because they were really good matches for one another, like similar physical characteristics, interpersonal skills, um, attractiveness, all of that stuff. And I interviewed, you know, dozens and dozens of applicants um, in order to find a close match. So it did, in fact, happen that um, through the field work, we did have to replace testers along the way. And, you know, some of the field work had to stop during that time because if one tester left, the other tester wasn't able to continue working. Um, fortunately, I was sort of like attuned to that possibility. And so I'd been continuing to interview people as the field work was happening, it was taking place. And so I was able to replace someone without too much delay. Um, but that was like a, you know, that, that was a, there's a lot, there are a number of things that, you know, are kind of out of your control and that are big vulnerabilities to the success of the study. Um, and that was one thing that um, that we had to deal with. So once once you completed the, the the field portion of the study, you collect this data. How did you analyze it, and what kind of techniques did you use to to get your findings? Yeah. So one of the beauties of um, an audit study is that, like your main results, are basically percentages. What percent of applications submitted by each tester type received a callback or a job offer, um, and It was great because I was coming out of a highly quantitative uh, graduate training program, and essentially my dissertation consisted of four percentages, and I thought that was really awesome. You know, of course, I did do more sophisticated analyses, and I wanted to look at, you know, whether there were and whether there were any, like, tester fixed effects or employer characteristics that were correlated with these differential outcomes. But the main results and the results that, you know, that are the basis of the major publications from this study were just four percentages. Now kind of thinking about, you know, more big picture questions about research, um, and your research in particular, in our classes we, we talk about generalizability and validity. So how did you think about these kind of constructs as you were designing your project? Yeah, those were really important issues for me. Um, so, you know, one of the limitations of an experimental design is that you have to limit the range of characteristics that you can focus on, and that in turn limits the generalizability of the study. And so it was very important for me to construct applicant profiles that represented the median or the most common um, kind of profile for the relevant population. Um, So I wanted to make sure that the kinds of work experiences that they had, the kinds of criminal records that they represented, common and um, meaningful for the population that I wanted to to. 
On the other hand, you know, there were other ways in which I wanted these testers to be a best-case scenario. You know, these were really appealing young men. These were men that, you know, had um, effective soft skills, good communication skills. Um, I wanted to present a best-case scenario so that we could show that even when everything else was very, very appealing, the simple fact of having a criminal record was, you know, enough to substantially limit employment opportunities. So in that sense, I kind of departed from what may be a more representative kind of applicant profile. So those were those were some of the ways that I was thinking about issues of generalizability. Issues of validity were critical in this study. You know, that's like the biggest strength of an experimental design was having very valid measures of internally valid measures of the process that we were looking for. Um, and that's where being really careful about every aspect of the design and implementation was critical so that I could be confident about the validity of those results. And I think this will be an interesting question for your project, but we talk about positionality of the researcher and how you might influence the study or shape shape the study. So, you know, you're, you have a very unique project. Was positionality something that came up for you or something that you had to think through um, as you were doing this audit? So um, it's something that I think I have had to think about in a number of different ways. So, you know, people often ask me, like, you know, you're a white woman, you're studying race, and you're studying populations that are experiencing incarceration. Like, you know, why are you doing this and why are you interested in these issues? And, you know, race is a fraught subject and it's often difficult to talk about. And I think that issues of positionality, the race and gender and social class of the researcher are really important in terms of the perspective that one can have and and I think the authenticity with which one can speak about a, a particular subject. I guess one of the ways in which, for me, this was a, um, a useful point of entry is that, in a sense, I'm studying discrimination by largely white employers. And so, in that sense, my positionality, I guess, offers me an opportunity to document discrimination among that population and to observe employers' behavior as it's affecting minority groups and ex-offenders. And so I can't speak to what that feels like. I can't speak to the psychological and social and community consequences of discrimination but I think I can effectively document the barriers that are in place as a result of that kind of direct discrimination. I think another kind of interesting aspect of the audit study, and I think you wrote about this um, in either the book or one of the articles, was the positionality of the testers was probably interesting because they had to fake having a criminal history. Um, Was that something that they kind of had a process, or how did you explain that to the testers as they had to go out in the field? Yeah, absolutely. That was a really interesting piece of this project. That was what I was initially thinking about when I was going to talk about this, is the human subjects review process thinks about subjects in terms of, you know, the people that you're collecting data from, and in that case, in this case, that was the employers. But what was striking to me is that this project actually took a big toll on the testers themselves, you know, for the young men that were posing as ex-offenders, and in particular for the young black men that were posing as ex-offenders, they were enduring just daily and repeated rejection um, from employers. And that's, and you know, kind of a, an immediate dismissal uh, from these gatekeepers that is really difficult to endure. 
And I think that was something that I hadn't anticipated as much in terms of like the management and 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 uh, and oversight of the project that just kind of the emotional toll that this work would take on the testers was a really important thing to be mindful of. Um, one thing that was interesting is that I conducted a couple of these kinds of studies, and one thing that was one thing that changed in how I ran these studies was, how much the testers themselves interacted with one another. So in the Milwaukee study, the first study that I conducted, pretty much all the testers reported to me individually. And I thought that was important because I didn't want them comparing their outcomes to one another. And I didn't want there to be a sense of like, oh, that person's having a better experience than I am. And I felt bad about that. So I had all of the testers report to me individually. And it was sort of a one-on-one kind of processing that we would do. And in retrospect, actually, that was not the best way to, to manage this kind of study. In the next study that we conducted in New York City, it was a larger study and a bigger group of testers, and it just wasn't feasible to debrief with each of them individually. So we had the entire team of testers show up in the morning together, and they would all come back to the office at, you know, together at the end of the day. Um, and it generated an amazing camaraderie among the testers They were all going through this experience together. They were able to debrief with one another, and they could relate to each other's experiences in a way that I couldn't relate to them since I wasn't out there pounding the pavement and encountering rejection over and over again. And I think that that was a much better environment for the testers to be working in than I would have expected. And so that was definitely a learning process for me. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Thank you for that insight. So the the studies and the now we're at the writing phase and the publication phase. Um, as you were writing up your results, what were you thinking about in terms of intended audience, and and how did that kind of shape the way that not necessarily the research was presented, but maybe the way you framed your arguments or your recommendations? So one thing that was important for me all the way through this project was to be able to do kind of research that could speak to an audience outside of academia and like kind of my litmus test was always, could, could my mother understand why this is important? And I think often in academia, you get pressured to do work that is incredibly technically sophisticated or incredibly theoretically sophisticated in a way that abstracts the research question from the kinds of questions that people in everyday settings are concerned about. And I wanted to make sure that somehow this research could speak to both the scientific and academic audience that I was invested in, but also could be read and understood by a broader audience. And like I said, that's a big advantage of the audit methodology. The results themselves are very simple and straightforward. Um, But in the write-up, I also wanted to try to make sure that it was very clear what the social problem was and, you know, and and what were the implications of the research documenting. And uh, thinking about limitations, what do you see as uh, the the major limitations to this approach? Um, And then we'll follow that up with what are some of the the benefits of this approach. So I'd say the major limitation is that audit studies can really only test a finite number of situations. So I often have graduate students coming to talk to me about wanting to do a field experiment. And, you know, they're actually interested in much more complicated, interesting questions than the kinds of things that could be reduced to this singular moment of, you know, a gatekeeper's decision. And so, you know, if you're interested in, in aspects of, well, there are many aspects of labor market outcomes, of, you know, things that are relevant for racial inequality or social inequality that you just couldn't test using this kind of methodology. 
um, even for looking at employment decisions at much higher levels in the labor market, would be difficult with this approach because it really relies on the ability to do this kind of anonymous applying to large numbers of jobs. And as you get higher in the occupational hierarchy, that's harder to do. The, the benefits are really um, the ability to establish clear causal relationships and then the ability to communicate those results to an audience of academics, policymakers, and the general public. Those two advantages, I think, are really a huge, huge benefit of this. And then if, if you know, someone comes up to you and says, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do this audit study, is there any sort of parting wisdom that you would give to them before they, before they jump into actually doing it? So I would definitely remind them that the devil is in the details and keep in mind that it sounds like a very simple approach, but that there's a lot of complexities to actually carrying it out effectively. Um, and so I would just want to make sure that the, that the researcher was up for taking on that level of like annoying, you know, little, little uh, detail-oriented kind of project. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. of me, Kyle Green, and my co-producer, Sarah Logison, thank you for listening. And remember, please give methods a chance. Thank you.